It's a bird. It's a plane. It's a magic marker. A, a felt pen. It's a mistake. It's a trap. It's a fucking comedy. It's quiet. Maybe too quiet. It's all happening. It's a good day to die. It's a good day to talk about movies. Welcome back. It is a good day to talk about Batman Begins. I am your host, Duncan. Joining me, as always, is Gardner. Welcome back to the podcast. And joining us today is a special guest. Our friend John is here today to talk to us about Batman Begins. John, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. It's a privilege. Of course, anytime. So like I said, on today's bonus episode, we are discussing the first film in the Nolan Batman trilogy, titled Batman Begins. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to go through all three films in the trilogy in our bonus episodes, starting obviously with this one, and then next week we'll do The Dark Knight, and the following week, The Dark Knight Rises. As a reminder, on this podcast, we talk about movies we love and interview independent filmmakers. Every Friday, we release a full episode, usually with a guest, and we're doing bonus episodes on Wednesdays. This is the bonus episode this week. Then on Friday, we have our full-length episode, where we have an interview with Gorov Seth, the filmmaker known for his film Multiverse. Before we go any further, a quick spoiler warning. We are going to be spoiling the events of Batman Begins. If you don't want the movie spoiled, then turn this off now and get back to us later. For everyone else, that was your spoiler warning. Also, the movie came out 17 years ago, so come on. <laughs> so Batman Begins was released in 2005, eight years after Batman and Robin, the previous Batman movie, and one year after Catwoman. The film is directed by Christopher Nolan, who directed all three films in the trilogy, and stars Christian Bale as Bruce Wayne and Batman. Sir Michael Caine plays Alfred. Gary Oldman plays Jim Gordon. Morgan Freeman plays Lucius Fox. Liam Neeson's plays Ra's al Ghul. Killian Murphy is Dr. Crane slash the Scarecrow. And Katie Holmes plays Rachel Dawes, Bruce's love interest. Rucker Howard also makes an appearance as the new CEO of Wayne Enterprises. And Tom Wilkinson plays Carmine Falcone. The movie is about Bruce Wayne becoming Batman. And the villains are Falcone, Scarecrow, and Ra's al Ghul. It kicked off the very popular Dark Knight trilogy and is considered by me to be very underrated. Let's get into our initial thoughts on it, starting with our guest, John. John, what are your broad thoughts on Batman Begins? All right. Yeah, so this was um, my first time ever watching it. I had seen Dark Knight and Dark Knight Rises in theaters. Just wasn't even aware of the first one because I was in elementary school. And uh, it was really cool to be able to go back and compare now to the Batman and just kind of compare the tone of it to the rest of the trilogy. And I think um, I really enjoyed it. I thought you, know, you just went through the casting and I, I thought it was cast very well. I was shocked actually that Rachel is not consistent throughout <laughs> the trilogy. I did, know, did not know there was a recast with that. So that was surprising. I think Oldman's Gordon is awesome. And I really like Sir Michael Keane as Alfred. I thought they were highlights. I was surprised that it was a bit, there were like kind of cheesy moments to it that are kind of more comic book movie than like Dark Knight and Dark Knight Rises. Like the tone was a little different than I expected. It still had the grit 
and the darkness to it that you see in you know the 2022 batman but yeah no i just i really enjoyed it off the the top there yeah awesome i'm glad to hear that especially on a first time view which is should make for some good conversation in this i'm excited to get into that but before we do that gardner what are your initial thoughts so I have a similar experience to John with this movie. I had seen this movie before, uh, but it's probably been about 12 or 13 years uh, since I saw it, maybe even longer. Um, I usually just revisit The Dark Knight and The Dark Knight Rises, and I don't come back to this movie. And after watching it recently, I don't under, I don't know why I didn't come back to this movie, because this movie kicks ass. Like John said, the cast is fantastic. I just love a good Batman origin story. There are some of those like uh, cheesy, like comic book movie moments. But for me, I don't know, like Nolan pulls them off in such a way that he balances the darkness and the grittiness with those little moments that they're not really like they're never distracting in a way that maybe like, say, uh, a Marvel movie can be where, you know, a joke becomes a 30 second to a minute long scene. Like this is just a quick cutaway and then it's back to the action. And I just... I agree with you, Duncan, 100%. This movie is like so underrated and uh, I'm really excited to get more into it. So I'm coming at this a little bit differently than you guys because this was my introduction to live action Batman in a way where I had never seen anything like this in movies before because I hadn't seen something that took itself as seriously as this and was also a superhero movie, which I think a lot of people hadn't really gotten that out of anything because there maybe wasn't something like that in the past. I hadn't seen any of the live action Batmans before this. Kevin Conroy was my Batman growing up. So that was what I knew. I knew the animated series and the movies that were associated with that. So now I was a little bit older. I wasn't old enough to be really establishing my own taste in movies yet or really getting as into movies as I was later on in life, like I am now and like I was in college. But it was one of those moments where I was like, oh, fuck yeah, Batman. I'm into Batman now when I saw it in theaters. And because of that, I've revisited it more than I guess other people maybe have. I know The Dark Knight and even The Dark Knight Rises are maybe more revisitable because they're more action heavy, I guess. Although there's action in this, dude. There's a lot of action in this. I don't see... I guess maybe I'm actually going to take the stance that I don't see why people maybe don't take it as seriously when they talk about comic book movies because they always rank the dark knight up there and they never talk about batman begins and i think there's a very good argument to be made that movie making this is the better movie and you maybe have better performances in the dark knight i think and again i think this argument's been made before and it's a silly argument because it's an oscar winning one of the best superhero performances of all time superhero movie performances of all time but you take keith ledger out of the dark knight is that a better movie than batman begins I don't know. And I think if maybe there was a constant, like if Heath Ledger was a constant in both movies, I think the surrounding aspects maybe of Batman Begins are more interesting and are a better story than what you have in Dark Knight. Although the opening to the Dark Knight is one of the all-time openings of all time. And we will get to the Dark Knight. Although we're talking about the series as a whole. This is a mini-series on the entire trilogy of the Nolan series. So we're going to be talking a little bit about other things. We won't spoil the Dark Knight. We won't spoil the Dark Knight Rises in the in this episode, but we are going to be getting into some parallels throughout the series. I think it's important to talk about its place within the series. So that's just a little note as we get into the discussion that I'm kind of talking a lot about the Dark Knight there, but I think it's important to talk about this 
trilogy as a whole and where this movie stands in the trilogy and the respect slash disrespect I think it certainly gets when people talk about it because I think that again it's one of the better movies storytelling wise and, and out there you know it's Nolan so it's funny I always talk about I talked about this movie as being one of those again one of those moments where I was like oh fuck yeah movies can do this this is a new type of superhero movie that was Memento for me I always say Memento and Pulp Fiction were those first two movies that really blew my mind and that's Nolan so I know, John, I've recommended Memento to you. Yep. Maybe you'll get on that. And then uh, <laughs> who knows? Maybe one day a GDT episode on Memento where we'll try to break that down. I don't know if we have the big enough brains to break down Memento. But yeah, those are my opening thoughts are that I love it. And I think that it's underrated, just like we were saying. And you brought it up, John, the cast. I mean, inspired to cast Sir Michael Caine as Alfred. Just, I don't know. I, I mean, I don't know if you could do better. And that's probably going to hurt any other Alfred performance that I ever see in the future because I'm just, it's never going to be him again. For me, that's Alfred. Agreed. I will say, just before we get into anything, that I can already tell that I'm not going to have trouble moving on from Bale to Pattinson after watching this. My attachment to the Nolan's trilogy is not going to be on Christian Bale's performance, I don't think. And I'm not going to be attached to where a lot of times we were even mentioned it in our The Batman episode where it's like you have your Batman and it's like whatever Batman you grew up with is your Batman. And Christian Bale was my Batman. And I'm sure for all of us that was true. But I'm going to have no problem after watching this. I can tell that I'm going to have no problem moving on from him to Pattinson. Not in a bad sense to Christian Bale, not meant as a pot shot to him. Just saying that as I was watching this, I didn't feel any sort of like nostalgia that I needed to like, oh, this is my guy. It's like, no, Pattinson's probably my guy. So those are my thoughts. We can get into some of the specifics of it now. Well, I just want to uh, springboard real quick off of something you said, Duncan, as to why people uh, don't like to re- revisit this movie so much, even though it is a fantastic movie. I think it's because people... <sighs> have issues with origin stories and they like to just get into the meat of the action. And um, it's funny. I was, I've been rewatching the Hobbit trilogy this week and I feel that way about that trilogy. It's got its issues, but I feel that way about the desolation of smog being like, this is like the best one of the bunch because it just gets right into the action. It doesn't waste time with like, not waste time, but it doesn't spend a lot of time on like exposition and stuff like that. And I can see where people would have uh, an issue with, you know, setting up where like Batman's origins and stuff like that. It's like, oh, we know all this. But like, to me, it's executed really, really well here. And there are a couple of moments where it's like, okay, but I don't know if that has to do with retrospect and and knowing Batman's character and Bruce Wayne's character already. And it probably does because the way it's executed in this film is just borderline masterful. Like you said, Duncan, this is maybe a better film in terms of like uh, beginning, middle, end than The Dark Knight and, and character arcs and everything. And it's it's very emotionally resonant throughout. Like, I just love Bruce Wayne in this movie. He, he does a, and I said in our The Batman episode that I really liked Robert Pattinson's Bruce Wayne, but I like that for a different reason because he's, yeah, that version of Bruce Wayne is very caught up in the notion that there's almost no distinction between Bruce Wayne and the Batman to him. And it's very clear in this movie that the Batman is a symbol and Bruce Wayne serves a different purpose. Right. And I love how that's driven home here through the dialogue, through Bale's performance, 
through, you know, Sir Michael Caine's performance, just fantastic. But I, I can see why people would revisit The Dark Knight and The Dark Knight Rises more because at a certain point, once you know the origin story, it does feel like a little bit of a slog to get through that part, to get to the part where they're already the superhero. Like I have trouble watching the original Spider-Man film because it's like, God, I've got to watch Peter Parker get bit by this spider again and then learn his powers again and stuff. And I just want to see Peter Parker go kick ass. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I would say that it's actually kind of interesting because I had brought up how I wanted this sort of Bruce Wayne in the Batman and I wanted to get more aspects of the playboy Bruce Wayne. I had forgotten that Alfred is the one who gives him that idea and is like, you have to be doing this. This is what is expected of you. And I think that we mentioned it in our The Batman episode, but maybe down the line in this new trilogy, we get something like that, where he's now realizing that he does have to also put on a Bruce Wayne persona. He has to act like Bruce Wayne. He has to put that mask on as well. So I think that's interesting. And the one thing I'll say about it being slow because it's a origin story is I think it's kind of hitting the ground running with its origin storytelling. It's him fighting the entire time. He's doing Batman shit from the beginning. He's just not dressed up in the cowl and in the suit yet. So I think that maybe I'm just going to be a defender of this, but against that point, and I know you're not necessarily, you're just saying that's something that you can see people saying, Gardner, but against that point is just, I think this movie is action-packed. And I was kind of surprised at how much action there was throughout the film, not just in the third act. And I think the third act definitely is just as action-packed if not more than the second and third movies in the trilogy and it's doing similar things with as the other movies where it's got more than just the one main villain it's got other storylines going throughout it i think it's very interesting and i think that it's also answering the questions in very unique ways like the entire lucius fox dynamic is so rewatchable in my opinion right i mean that's that dynamic is amazing. And, and all of their talks, like, don't think of me as an idiot, like spelunking. I love all that dialogue is phenomenal, dude. It's, it's great. And I, I think that that makes it more re- rewatchable, as does things like Liam Neeson, Killian Murphy, performances like that, which I think go underrated because of Heath Ledger, Tom Hardy, things like that in the future. Yeah, no, I, I totally want to echo what you said about the action sequences in the, the first part of the film. I actually paused it after like the temple destruction scene because I wanted to look up the fight uh, choreographers because it to me felt very much like Kill Bill, like where it was just creative fighting and violence and you know props exploding and stuff. It was just like, who the hell came up with that? Like, this is so fun to watch. It wasn't just like throwing jabs and punches. Like it was like a dance like it was just cool to watch so i i would totally agree and i think for that reason it has a lot of uh rewatchability and I, I think i'd come back to it yeah that first act never drags uh in my opinion i'm just saying i could see where people's uh viewpoint might come from but for me it's awesome also nolan loves that uh scenery of like the ice peaks because is that the same location as from interstellar Sure looks like it. I don't know if it is or not, but like, you know, when they go visit Matt Damon, like it looks like basically like the exact same landscape. I also love from that moment, I I was chuckling to myself when I was rewatching it. I was like, (laughs) uh, Bruce Wayne's like, no, I'm not going to kill this one guy, but 
I will flip this hot coal into the explosives and kill 20 guys. I don't know. There was just kind of a funny irony there. We'll talk about that and some other things when we get later on into does this Batman kill or not? Because that's the big question that comes up with every live action Batman. And so we'll get into a little bit of the specifics of that. We talk about, though, things that Nolan likes to do, like use that location. He also likes to focus on male characters, I will say, because as I was writing down the cast of this film, I have to make this note early on before we get into anything else. There's basically one female character in this movie. Pretty much. Sure, there's some other, they're pretty much set dressing the rest of, of the female characters. They're there to be, they're not, they're, they're not there to be characters. It's basically Rachel and that's it. I don't know. I thought that, I thought there was a lot of depth to uh, his dates to that. Uh, <laughs> they seems pretty layered. I don't know what you're talking about. Come on, we're going to go find another hotel for you to buy. <laughs> <laughs> I was surprised. I was like, where did you find on such short notice two not only like like supermodels like, like, that match, you know, the bill that Alfred was talking about, but ones that are actually crazy enough to want to go. Like, you're not even like asking them to go into that. They're just jumping into the water themselves. They, want, they, were, <laughs> they were just down to clown to begin with. I Please, Bruce, I know they're probably... Uh, a little bit out of my league, but give me their numbers. Come on. That's a great point about the women characters in this film. And, you know, even though Rachel does play like a pretty significant part in this movie, she's just there as a plot device to get Bruce there. You know, like she she's spunky and she's, you know, an idealist and going up against the big bads. But at the end of the day, it's it's Bruce who comes in and, and saves the day. It's Batman who comes in and saves the day. And that's definitely an issue with this trilogy as a whole. And I would say kind of Nolan's filmmaking in general. And this is not a new criticism. This is something that's been leveled against him for a long time. I can see it. I, I, I agree with it. It's, it's definitely something you notice on the rewatch, especially uh, with retrospect. But I do... I've seen a lot of people shit on Katie Holmes for her performance of Rachel in this movie and doesn't bug me. I think she does like a pretty decent job with what she's given. I think she's great. And I think she's playing her role perfectly. Agreed. Yeah, exactly. I forgot. Like I haven't seen her in a, a project really in a while since seeing this. She got that Scientology cult against her dude you you divorce tom cruise and you leave scientology you ain't working again so we talked a little bit about where we start off but it obviously starts off with first young bruce falling down into with rachel falling down into the bat cave and we see that this is a nightmare that bruce is having in his current day state and this is where i'm talking about he's already living away from gotham I, don't, I was going to say on the run. He's not on the run, but I mean, he kind of is because people are looking for him or certain people are looking for him. Certain people think he's dead, but he's already there doing this kind of stuff. We don't have to see him like make that decision or anything. I like that. And he's fighting people immediately. And then we see that, you know, Raza Ghul comes and we get pretty much immediately into the League of Shadows and that training. And obviously, at this point, we don't realize who the real Razagul is. At least I didn't in my first viewing. I don't know if that's obvious to people on their second viewings and stuff. Obviously, I know it now, but I don't know if it's like, oh, you should have known on your first viewing, but I certainly didn't. And throughout this, we're getting sprinkled in the story of not only 
when Bruce's parents were murdered, but the trial and when Bruce left. And we're getting bits and pieces about Bruce's life and his state of like his mind where he's at. And we're also getting pieces of where Gotham's at. We're seeing that Gotham's not in a great place either. And that's kind of all swirling together into where Bruce is. And I think the important thing to note is that Bruce was about to try to kill Joe Chill, who is the one who murdered his parents. And Joe Chill is getting about to get out for basically giving some dirt on Falcone, who he was cellmates with in prison. So we got some dirt on Falcone. So he dished some of that out. And now he's going to get out free a little bit earlier. And so Bruce is attending that and he's got a gun and his plan was to kill him. But some of Falcone's goons get to him first and they shoot him. And Bruce confesses this to Rachel afterwards in the car where he's like, he shows her the gun and he's like, I'm no better. I was going to kill him. She's not happy. And this leads him down to where we are now. That leads him to where we are at the beginning of the movie where he meets up with Ra's al Ghul and the League of Shadows. and. Then we mentioned he burns the League of Shadows down after they ask him to kill a guy, right? Which, Gardner, you brought up the kind of hypocrisy of being, you know, immediately going to burn the entire place down where it's like, all right, someone's dying in that. You know, it might not be everyone, but someone's dying in that, at least. And uh, it is funny. But my one note with that is if you're if you're going to, like, have your Batman borderline kill people... Don't make it such a point that he's not going to like, don't have him saying I don't kill people so often in the movie and then have him kill people. And then I'm just going to bring it up right now. The line at the end of the thing where it's like, I'm, I'm not going to kill you, but I don't have to save you. And then he just lets him like fall to his death. It's like, you just killed him. Let's not play semantics here. That's not manslaughter. You, you killed him. You straight up killed that guy. Well, Jim killed him. You know, it wasn't, it was, it was, Okay, so we could play like the semantics game. The ground killed him, really, right? Well, what was it? The well, the fall killed him. But like it was, yeah, sure, it was Bruce's plan to go and blow up the pylons so that the monorail would go off the thing, but he's not the one that pulled the trigger. Jim Gordon pulled the trigger, which killed Raz al Ghul. He's the one that's chopping the stuff off to to cut that train off at the end, that car away. True, true. You know what I mean? He's making decisions that that are leading to this. My whole point is that I think it's a little silly, and I don't even necessarily have it as a sticking point for me that I need my Batman to to necessarily completely not kill all the time. I think it's cool if you can, but I'm not going to like throw a tantrum if he does. But don't make it such a big sticking point. Well, yeah, I mean like like I don't hate Ben Affleck Batman and he just like straight up murders people. And I'm like, all right, that's, you know, that's fine. That's this version of Batman. But when you make, when you make it a point in the movie, they'd say how he won't murder. And then one of the first things we see a bunch of people, it's a little, it doesn't ruin the movie for me, but it did take me out of it a little bit when I was watching it. And I was like, this is kind of silly. I think they spent a lot of time to kind of establishing that, you know, like showing vulnerability of Batman and his grief and kind of toying, with the idea of like we've discussed like potentially killing joe chill like it's not outlandish that he might eventually actually kill somebody so like yeah to take that moral high ground the whole movie and then you know actually kill somebody like there was a setup for it they didn't have to you know go to the other side 
And I think maybe if you examine that later on where you're like, you break down that idea of, oh, I can just let someone not, you know, if you examine that for Batman, if he's forced to confront that later on, maybe later on in the trilogy, maybe that makes it more interesting. But it kind of is just like, yeah, you're right. You don't have to save him. It's kind of presented as this badass line, like, fuck yeah, Batman doesn't have to save him. He can just let him die. And it's like, wait a minute, what am I cheering for right now? Yeah, no, he doesn't have to do all, like, those mental gymnastics to, like, justify it in the semantics, like you said. Like, you, you, we've established that you kind of, there's a good reason, and, you know, yeah, he, he got there himself. But that, that is kind of part of Bale's Batman, right, is that he's, like, a very tortured individual, and he's constantly, like, not only fighting crime, but he's fighting himself and his own sense of, of, am I right doing this? Do I need to be doing this? Which is... Uh, more deeply explored in two and three, but he he is the kind of guy who does jump through hoops and do a lot of mental gymnastics to justify himself, which is why Harvey Dent is such an interesting foil to him in The Dark Knight, right? Because I, I'll, I'll save it. I'll save it for our Dark Knight episode, <laughs> but I'm just saying it's a little goofy, but it it is a setup, I feel like, for later installments in the trilogy and so we can get now to him getting back to gotham and i love the moment on the plane where he's talking to alfred and alfred's like you know it's gonna be hard to bring you back from the dead and he's like what do you mean he's like it's been seven years and then he's like well good thing i left everything to you and alfred's like yeah yeah you know you can you can borrow the rolls if you want just bring it back with a full tank of gas and it's like you of course alfred's got such a good sense of humor i love him he's such a good character and then immediately goes to take a nap, dude. So good. I, the way he leans back is so good. It's so good. And this is also a good setup for one of the other villains, which is Rucker Howard's character, who he's always playing a bad guy. And so here's where we start getting the fun stuff with like Lucius Fox and him setting up the Batman stuff. And this is, I think, where the fun of the real world Nolan comes into play, where you're getting the gritty... And not gritty in a sense of like not quips and no comedy, but gritty in the sense of this is real world stuff. This is stuff that could actually happen and there's real world explanations for it. And it's supposed to be military. I don't want to say reject because it's just too expensive, but, you know, rejected military stuff where they were like, we don't have Uh, prototypes. Yeah. Prototypes is a good way to say it. Yeah. And but I I love the line where it's like, yeah, they decided like three hundred million dollars wasn't worthy of a, a that was that was too much for a soldier's life and uh a little pot shot at the military i felt like but i mean no way they're gonna actually spend that much money on uh, on someone's life but it is like what is a life worth like when are you gonna decide not to to um spend the money to save someone but um interesting stuff there like i love again i love the dynamic between lucius and him and i love that he knows Mm-hmm. from the get-go that something's going on and then he knows he's batman very quickly after that and again i love the line where he's like don't don't thank me for a fool stuff like that and everything here is just great watching him get into batman and this is all stuff that i think for the most part is nolan creating this world where it's not necessarily like everyone when it was being announced i think everyone was like oh they're doing year one Right. And year one, the comic picks up with him already coming back from training. 
So this movie is actually before year one in terms of chronology. And I guess you could call it year zero, although there is a year zero comic that I haven't read. So I'm not sure how much that matches up to it. But it's interesting that it's like even before the origin that we like the heralded origin that we get in the comics that everyone always talks about year one. This is even before that. And I guess that maybe that speaks a little bit to, you know, people be shying away from it and being like, oh, this is a really a true origin story. It's taking you all the way back. And uh, for me, it all hits. I love that. I don't know if you guys want to chime in on some of the points here, like the middle area of the film where he's suiting up kind of, and we're seeing what the actual plot is for the villains. And we're seeing how Scarecrow and the person who's not being named, who later is going to be revealed to be Ra's al Ghul, who obviously in a second watch, I'm like knowing that. I don't know if you, when, I don't know exactly when you find that out on a first watch, but how they're all together and how Falcone is also within that plot. And that he gets thrown to the wayside very quickly. I kind of feel like I've kind of forgot about that. I was like, oh, he gets fucked early on. And he's like talking himself up to be this big bad, like this badass. I own the city. I'm not afraid of anything. Like you can't buy that kind of power, all that kind of shit. And then he gets his ass kicked by Jonathan Crane, dude. Come on. Not the badass you want that, that you know you would think would be taking down a guy who was talking himself up like that, but he's got the uh, the gas. Oh yeah, no, I was just gonna say um, on the Falcone note, I think just he kind of is important for the setup of Batman's struggles with legacy because I think that's something like you know before he goes off to Bhutan, you know he's talking about like how he'll never be able to shed the Wayne legacy and you'll never kind of like understand Gotham through. The lens of the people who are really suffering and it's funny because then he gets over there and he's pickpocketing and you see all like the wayne enterprises logos like he truly can escape that and you know it, like you said he does kind of get tossed aside for the rest of the movie but i thought it was interesting that he kind of set up that uh struggle at the beginning and not tossed aside i don't mean that in a bad way for the film like the film tosses him aside i mean that the other villains do just i want to be clear that i'm not saying like oh the movie throws him away you know what i mean yeah it drives home how dangerous the other villains are because they establish how powerful falcone is and they do a, like the the first act and in a, a good chunk of the second act is is dedicated to falcone being this really scary guy and when he is dispatched the way that he is, it sends a signal to the audience like, okay, whoever's coming in next, and at this point you don't know that it's Ra's al Ghul in the League of Shadows. Although if you're an astute viewer, you could probably piece that together. But it it, it signals to you like this, whatever is coming next is no fucking joke. It is the real deal. Yeah, for sure. On the you kind of mentioned uh, like world building before, and it, we talked about the visuals that Nolan's chosen and his filming locations. Um, one thing that I was seeing on Twitter just when the Batman you know twenty twenty two came out was that um, you know Matt Reeves had been very intentional about creating this world where you can't tell if it's Chicago, you can't tell if it's New York. It's it's you know it's Gotham City, and Nolan. I think it's very obvious that it's Chicago from the get-go and, you know, they add this high-tech, you know, train track that's basically the L on steroids in Chicago, but it's still Chicago. Like, what do you guys think about that and his efforts to create 
you know, a, a unique Gotham city. I think in this one, at least, I felt like it was, we'll see as I go through the rewatches, because I've never really focused on that part of it, because I'm from Chicago, so I've always known that it was filmed in Chicago, and I've always kind of liked that part of it. Like, there's a part, you know, the underground sequence, like, my dad was always talking to me about, it's Lower LaSalle. Like, we know the the roads that they're on in, in, in certain aspects of The Dark Knight, and I think it becomes more evident the, in The Dark Knight specifically. But there was certain, like shots that i felt were making it feel crowded which i think is an important like not crowded in the sense of people necessarily but the buildings being crowded and i felt like that that came through and there was one aerial shot that to me looked like gotham and i didn't know if that was used from somewhere else or if they just took chicago for that one but i know that they used like different skylines in the Dark Knight Rises, for example, I know they use a skyline from uh, I'm forgetting where, but not Chicago, for example, in The Dark Knight Rises. And he doesn't try that hard, I don't think, in later installments, at least, because he's going for this real world aspect. And I think that might be somewhere where the films lose points in the realism aspect because you want to feel like Gotham is this its own place. But... Again, I, all that to say that I do think that in this film there is a little bit of an aesthetic that brings it out. I think it, I think it works really well. Definitely, there's a few shots where you can tell, like, oh yeah, that that's Chicago. Uh, but like you alluded to, Duncan, it it has to do with grounding it in the real world and making it feel almost possible, you know, and and more relatable in that way compared to a lot of superhero movies that are just really lean into the fantastical elements. So grounding it in a real like geographical location to me is an effective tactic at grounding the story in a way that you can relate to. It's like uh, immediately more accessible to the audience because you're seeing something that is real. So we haven't really talked too much about Killian Murphy or Scarecrow. He is obviously not the main villain, Ra's al Ghul is, but I think he does a great job. Like I said, I think that he's good at being that creepy villain. That's what you want in a Batman villain is someone who's going to make your skin crawl a little bit. He's got a good look for it. I think he's perfect for this type of villain. So kudos to that, I think. Kudos to the casting department as well as the performance from Killian Murphy. And... I'm scared by him, or I was scared by him when I first saw it, for sure. I was put off by his creepiness and by the idea that he was putting people into this asylum and then experimenting on them. That's always been something that's kind of scared me, especially like when it's like this guy thinks he's got everyone under his thumb and he can still get to him. Like I said, that showing how he can get to Falcone is, I think it's a cool move that like shows you how scary he can be, so... I love the character. He's like a like a creepy uh, like doctor from like the 1910s, you know, who experiments on his patients in the insane asylum. And that's a thing that really happened for sure. Like you can go. I don't want to get into, you know, that whole rabbit hole right now. But that really did. That was really a thing where their uh, doctors would experiment on patients and stuff for for a long time up until like the 60s and 70s. And another thing that's underrated about his aspect uh, or the, the scarecrow element of this movie is how horrifying 
the visuals are. Anytime that we see someone who has been sprayed with the hallucinogen and they see Scarecrow's mask and the maggots and everything coming out of it. I remember when I first watched this movie, absolutely terrified me. I would look away from the screen because I was like eight years old. But also the scene where Batman like turns it around and sprays it in his face and he sees him and he's got this slime coming out of his eyes and his mouth. Nolan does such a good job at integrating horror elements into this movie to really make Batman scary and to make the villains scary. I love how he shoots the scene, like the scene at the docks where Batman makes his first appearance and he's hunting the, the uh, bad guys. And it's like, he's a ghost and he shows it from the villains perspective, the bad guys perspective to show how scary Batman would be to them. It's just, it's, it's one of the things that I just adore about this film. And I feel like, needs to be discussed more it's so fucking freaky dude the shot where batman has all this ooze coming out of all of his eyes and his nose and his mouth is it gets me dude i'll see that in my nightmares i don't want to speak out of turn here but i think that they did that practically probably with visual effects added afterwards but there was a viral clip that went around a couple years ago of behind the scenes footage from a scarecrow scene from Batman Begins. And I think it was that one. I think it was when Batman has the like goo and stuff coming out and is very creepy. I'm pretty sure they did that with a different Batman, like a different guy in, in makeup and stuff, and then added probably special effects afterwards. But I'm pretty sure I'll have to look it up. But I think that was the clip that went viral a couple of years ago. That's big if true. That's that's fucking that's an accomplishment, dude, because because even to this day, when I was watching this the other day, like that shit got me, you know, as an adult, that shit was spooky. And then later when Batman is running around uh, and the, the fog is all over, like the main island of Gotham City and people are seeing him and he's got the lights coming out of his eyes and he looks freaky and there's little little King Joffrey is there. And he sees the horse breathing fire and stuff like that. Like, it's really well done, man. Wait, is that really the same actor as uh, Joffrey Baratheon? It is. Yeah, that that's Jack Leeson. Whoa. Christian Bale actually worked with him on a film prior to this and recommended him for the role. And so Christopher Nolan cast him. Wow. And I can confirm that, yes, that scene with the demon Batman was the scene that from the behind the scenes footage that went viral and it was done practically, mostly practically. There was, I have to give a little shout out to Andrew F. Pierce. There was a great thread on Twitter about how most of those shots that are lauded as practical only shots are actually have visual effects in them. And all these like films like Mad Max Fury Road, for example, which is lauded as being this practical film, which is a lot of practical effects in it has over 2,000 visual effects shots in it. And there's similar films to that, like the most recent Mission Impossible, I believe, was one that people were talking about as being this practical effects. And a lot of like Tom Cruise movies are practically practical effects stuff. But there is a lot of visual effects that go into that as well, just so people are aware of this. Well, you know, we, we've talked a lot about semantics this episode. I feel like some of that, like you could, you know, Tom Cruise really is hanging on the side of an airplane that's taking off, but he's wired to it and they digitally remove the wires. 
I don't know. Is that is that a, a visual effect or is that practical? I'd say that's practical. But if you wanted to, you could categorize that as a visual effect. The point being that in the Mission Impossible films, there's over 2000 visual effects shots or shots that use visual effects. So it's like, OK, it's now disparaging to the people who work on those films. And then it's harder for them to make their buck if people are always talking about how there's no visual effects in, in films. And it's like, especially when people say like, there's no visual effects at all. It's like, well, it's not like, like, why would you even say that? It's just not true. And actors say it all the time. There's, there's like always visual effects. I mean, movies that you would think had no visual effects. Like um, uh, one good example I can think of is like Mindhunter, that TV show. There's a lot of visual effects in that series with like replacing backgrounds and skylines and stuff like that. I wouldn't really consider that to be like some crazy like CGI overture or like um, even Joaquin Phoenix's Joker. There's a lot of visual effects in that to add buildings to the skyline to make it feel more claustrophobic. I don't know. Does that take away from, you know, all, all the other production and set design that went into it? I don't think so. I wouldn't really count that as like a visual effect in in the sense that a lot of people would like colloquially, if you were to tell someone like this movie has a lot of CGI, they're going to think of like um, like the Hulk in Avengers or something like that. You know, OK, we're on a tangent here, but. A good example is there's a scene in Edgar Wright's Last Night in Soho where they spin around and the actress changes in in mid-dance. And he's talked about how it's done in camera and everyone's like, oh, there's no visual effects. in this. That's visual effects. There's no, like, if you watch the shot, sure, they might have done it and there might be camera tricks that they, they filmed a lot of it. But if you look at it, and it's not just like, oh, we added a building, which I still would argue is visual effects, or it's not just taking out wires, which is more semantical, but it's stuff like that, where it's like, now we're saying that this is a completely practical shot. And this is all just based off this this thread that Andrew F. Pierce, a former guest of ours, put on my timeline and I, and I saw, and it was very interesting. One of the things in that thread was Jeffrey Wright said that in the Batman trailer, there was no visual effects. And I was like, I'm sure that some of those shots had visual effects. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a fair point. Uh, it does take away from people who actually like filmmakers who actually avoid doing that stuff in the computer entirely to say that something is just entirely practical effects when you're when you're touching it up or adding things or, or splicing things together. I think that's a fair point. So back to this movie, we've touched on most of the plot. We've touched on a lot of what we like. We get to the third act here. And like we said, it comes down to Ra's al Ghul and batman and a note i had was that all superhero movies should have scenes on a train because i can't think of one that doesn't just fucking slap to be honest spider-man train scene comes to mind that was pretty epic it's yeah it's great it's, an, it's another great one that i mean i like the one in joker not technically a train scene but the bus scene in shang chi i thought was really fucking sick mm. that one was great too yeah, great action effects in that one. But yeah, I would say that we're getting pretty much to the end of plot-wise discussing everything that is going on in this movie, and we can pretty much get to the end of it. Do you guys have any big things that you wanted to touch on before we wrap up? One thing that uh, just broke my heart in both this movie and um, you know the most recent Batman is that um, Bruce Wayne, there's always that like angsty orphan 
snubbing of Alfred. There's always like one or two lines of just like, you don't get it. You're not my real dad. It's just like, ah, like there, Alfred's always the best. It just sucks. And you, you know, you just, you hate to see it. Just makes you love Alfred more for, for putting up with Bruce's shit. (laughs) And especially in this movie when like after the chase scene with the Batmobile and he was like, it's a wonder you weren't killed. Like, what what are you doing? He's like, Alfred, I, I like, you know, he just like shrugs him off. You're like, God damn, Alfred, what a, what a long suffering soul, dude. You're the man. <laughs> the, the one thing I wanted to point out about this movie that is, I just thought of this while we were recording, but it's funny how Ra's al Ghul in this movie is kind of the inverse of the Mandarin in Iron Man 3, where they like put forth this, you know, face. And then it turns out to be, you know, like the, like a, like a, like a group or whatever that's like behind it. And then in this movie, it's like Ra's al Ghul is like, he's there the whole time, but he pretends that someone else is him. And then it comes out and his, his real identity is Liam Neeson's. I don't know. Small observation. It's just something I noticed. I love it. Yeah. Also very Padme. Queen Amidala. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. Good point. Whatever we can do to bring it back to star Wars. We will <laughs> just know that that wraps up the discussion of Batman begins, which means it's time for final thoughts and ratings. John, as our guest, you get to go first. What is your rating out of 100 of Batman Begins? I'm really curious to see what you guys come up with, but I think we'll kind of be in the same ballpark. I feel pretty good about this number. Uh, I'm going to say 85 out of 100. 85 what? Oh, 85 bloody logs, because that was one of my favorite quotes in the whole movie when he was like, what's the point of all those push-ups if you can't even lift a bloody log? Great Alfred line. So yeah, 85 bloody logs out of 100. Uh, and yeah, no, I mean, I just, it, we've covered a lot of my favorite you know parts of it. I thought the, just the, the scenery and the grit and the realism that Nolan employed really was effective and um, you know, having seen Dark Knight and Dark Knight Rises before, I kind of knew what I was getting into. But like I said, there were kind of some tone hangups I had where like it kind of took me out of it at points. Like when his parents were killed, I found it a little cheesy. And like just certain moments, it was like it didn't feel like it fit in with kind of the, the universe Nolan was creating. But um, really enjoyable to watch it. Um, and yeah, no, I think it was great. Gardner, what did you think? Well, uh, before I get into my rating, I want to touch on something John said about like the the quips and, and little things here and there. I wanted to mention this at the top of the episode, but it feels like those were things that like the studio said that Nolan had to include, you know, to make it more like a superhero film. And then after the success of this with the tone, they kind of let him do more of his own thing in the next two films. You'll notice that those elements of the film are pretty much completely excised. Uh, And I want to give a quick shout out to Hans Zimmer's score. Just fantastic. His theme for the Batman gets me hyped every single time. But for my rating, I want to give this movie 87 arrowheads out of 100. I think it's criminally underrated. Uh, the fact that this isn't, you know, in like the top five of like best Batman movies when people do their lists is just it's mind boggling to me. It's a perfect origin story. And um, I love watching it and I'll probably rewatch it again, you know, in like a year or so. This trilogy is fantastic. Nolan's amazing. Bale is amazing. Yeah, I love it. 
Yeah, I love this movie. I've talked about what I love about it, but I really do think it is kind of perfect for what it's trying to be. Like you said, the perfect origin story. I love all the cast. I think that everyone does a great job. Maybe Jim Gordon doesn't get the most in this compared to other movies that he's allowed to do, but what he is, he does great. I think that all the characters are great. I'm into it. I think the villains are good and not nearly talked about enough because of the rest of the trilogy. But honestly, I love this Bruce Wayne. I love this Batman. I don't love the suit as much as I remembered liking it, but the Lucius Fox stuff is so good throughout the trilogy. It's good. But this stuff right here and the showing him getting into it and like becoming Batman and how he gets all his gadgets and the real world aspect of it. I love it all. For that reason, I'm giving this film 89 deep downs out of 100 because I don't really think it matters who you are deep down. I think that all you, you know, all that matters is your actions. I think I agree with that. I'm, I'm with that. All that matters is what you do. And it uh, doesn't matter what uh, what you're in, you know, you, you deep down, you might be that, that little boy at heart. But yeah, Bojack Horseman totally ripped this movie off. I know. That's exactly what I was thinking because I did not remember it being from this. But the line from Diane and Bojack Horseman is exactly from this. And it's even a line that I have written down from Bojack Horseman because I thought it was so good. And it's totally directly from this. Well, I'm, I'm sure it's stolen from some Greek motherfucker from like 200 AD anyway. So, yeah, for sure. So that's the end of the show, folks. We want to thank John for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. You guys have something really special here and it's an honor. Awesome, dude. Anytime. We'd love to have you back. For sure. Let me know. Give me more movie homework. Uh, and I, I'm here. And thank you to our listeners for sticking around to the end. We appreciate you. Thanks for listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen. Don't forget to subscribe. You can find us by searching the letters GDT anywhere you listen to podcasts and leave a five-star review while you're at it. You can also keep up to date with us by following us on Twitter and on Instagram at GoodDayToPod. Send us a DM while you're at it and let us know what you think of the show. Remember, we have full episodes every Friday and bonus episodes every Wednesday. This was this week's bonus episode, and next week's bonus episode will be on The Dark Knight as we continue this miniseries. So stay tuned for that, and stay tuned for our regularly scheduled episode coming out this Friday, where we have an interview with Gorov Seth. Gorov is known for his film Multiverse, which is available to watch on Hulu now. So if you haven't seen Multiverse, go watch that movie before Friday's episode. And we will talk to you then. Thanks for listening, folks. And remember, the night is always darkest before the dawn.